Welcome to the Mindset Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephanie Fay, and I'll be sharing insights into how human brain architecture and biology are influenced by our unconscious fears and social behaviors. I'll also give you science-based strategies on how to skyrocket the brain's learning potential by focusing on the power of mindset, relationship, and psychological safety. Thanks for listening. Hi, and thanks for joining me. In a few of the previous episodes, I have been exploring the idea of safety and how we can really lay that as a foundation that we think about before we even go into the idea of mindset or learning. So without a sense of physical and metaphorical or psychological safety, we really can't access the features of the brain that we need in order to have creativity and flexibility and innovation and learning. And this is so powerful because we need those features of the brain to be online in order for us to create our most desired results, our most desired realities. So once again, I I do want to bring up this idea of safety. And in today's episode, we're actually going to look at how social media and media can affect this level of safety. We're going to look at how These things bring up a level of defensiveness, us versus them tribalism, some aggressiveness. And part of this is because these, this technology doesn't actually allow us to use some of our most evolved systems. And we'll even look at how we keep attempting to replicate these biological systems of social engagement inside our technology, um, but it doesn't quite do the trick. So we're going to take a look at that and also just this idea that we can have a a level of intimacy with each other that really brings us into a really ideal state, an ideal state of creativity. And I call that social intimacy. But what most of us are engaging in is something called social performance, where there is always a a slight level of anxiety and insecurity that's built into that. So we're going to take a look at all of those in today's episode. You'll also notice that my voice sounds a little bit different in this section and also in the conclusion. I have a cold and I also decided to divide one of these episodes. So I'm recording this at a different time than the the episode inside this. I'll be pulling from a few key people in this episode. One of them is Tristan Harris, who explains that technology is not neutral. So we'll look at that when we're looking at the addictive nature and the different algorithms that social media is using, as well as MIT's Nicholas Negroponte and his concept of the daily me and how this is creating us versus them tribalism and extreme points of view. And Steven Pinker's concept of how fear-based media has a powerful influence on our psyche and our negativity about the world. And as always, Stephen Porges and his polyvagal theory that will be throughout the episode when we're talking about the social engagement system. So thanks for joining me for this episode. So one source of this lack of safety is coming from social media. And there's a few reasons why. So the first is that what social media is doing is there is a, in many ways, Let's, let's talk about things like Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, some of those ones. These I would call asynchronous, the asynchronous social media, meaning that I'm not engaging with you in direct lifetime. I might send you something, then you receive it, but we're not live interacting at that moment. 
with that type of social media, there is a small, even if it's just microscopic, there's a small delay in time between when you project something and something gets returned. So when you serve something and something gets returned, it's not synchronous live in the moment. So for that, there that is really right there, almost the de- definition of a violation of the neural expectations that we that are biologically hardwired in us. We are hardwired to engage in that synchronous, live, dynamic social engagement with humans, and it requires multiple senses. So it's not just the uh, frequency of the voice and the facial gestures. There are tiny little things like electric activity happening from the skin, uh, dilation of pores, smell, the smell changes depending on our internal state. So we definitely miss a lot of those cues when we're interacting online. The other features of this, first of all, the asynchronous social media, that to me, that's one of the main features is that it's actually not live interaction. We think it is, but it really isn't. We are not um, engaging in live data flow at that moment with all of those senses. But the other piece of that is even if it is synchronous, so even if it's, say, a FaceTime video chat or Skype video chat, there are still those other senses that are missing, the smell, those microscopic detection of different vibrations from the person's skin, you know, all of those kinds of things that are happening. But the other thing is that sometimes that person's eye gaze is actually looking at themselves more than they're looking at you. So it looks like they're looking at you, but they're looking at the image of themselves in the camera. And that's not pupil-to-pupil gaze. That's not actual eye-to-eye contact. So there is that, and it may only be for small moments, may not be the entire time, but all of that breaks up the rhythm and creates those feelings where they may be very, very subtle within us, but it's an interruption of that social engagement. The other thing is that as humans, we are able to detect the difference between a recording or something that's coming through a an instrument of some sort rather than live. For newborns, for example, uh, newborns are very empathetic. When newborns hear other newborns crying, it actually triggers them to cry. Um, but when they put tape recorders of newborns crying, that does not uh, activate the, the newborn's crying response. So we are equipped with the ability to detect when something is real and live with us and when it's not. One thing that's interesting about the evolution of our communication systems is that we are trying to incorporate more and more of the social engagement system. So the first example would be when we were just writing to each other and using graphical representations of language. We introduced prosody by adding punctuation. So a question mark, a Exclamation mark will change the tone of my voice. Commas, periods, those add pauses, all of that creates that variability and an attempt to indicate our emotion through a a change in the voice, in the tone, the prosody of the voice. So we already started to attempt to do that in our written communication, trying to incorporate more of that. We then added emojis as a way to incorporate more of the social engagement system, the facial expressions. And then, of course, you know, you can pretty much predict the evolution of all of our digital communication because that wasn't satiating our, our biological need for the use of this system. So it then went to sharing photos to get more of those aspects of our, our human face involved, which then evolved into video and being able to share video. So then we're going to see now the 
rise of uh, virtual reality so that we can have even more of this social engagement system, these social sensory systems involved in our interactions with others. But again, we are equipped with this ability to detect the difference between something that is delivered to us digitally or in live time. So the digital communication doesn't mean that we cannot use it. It's a very, very important tool. In fact, I would say it's been powerful in our ability to connect as a species rather than these isolated tribes. But that's going to actually lead to another point. It's introducing new types of tribes. But it has increased our ability to be interconnected and to share ideas. And that's really, really important. What I would say, however, is that if it replaces live dynamic interaction, human-to-human, face-to-face connection, it is not allowing us to use this very evolved system enough to give us a sense of safety. So someone who might have a million in quote, friends on social media, they're engaging a lot, they're uh, interacting, but they're not creating that sense of social intimacy. And to me, social intimacy is the feeling that we have where we can stay immobilized, so not needing to move and stay, stay where we are with a person and not feel fear. And what that means is that there is a vagal tone, a high level of vagal tone, a break on the heart's pacemaker that happens in a moment where I'm with somebody else and that slowing down and that that break that my heart's pacemaker gets, that vagal tone that's happening, it means that my mobilization system is not being recruited. It's a slowing down. There's longer exhalations. You can almost see a long exhalation with somebody is a feeling of relief. You finally get to put your guard down. And it's something that I, that is what I believe is very missing, especially on social media, but in many of our human to human interactions is that feeling of being able to put your guard down and stop performing. So I would say that what social media is doing is it's allowing for a lot of performance. There's a lot of social performance happening. And if our performance isn't received with enough applause and likes, we start to devalue who we are. So I'm not saying that we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Social media and the digital communication is absolutely important. It's vital to, to me, planetary and species-wide thriving. However, not if it replaces uh, fairly high levels of that social intimacy where we can put our guard down, stop performing, have a long exhalation with somebody and not feel like we need to move in that moment to stay present with them, to stay in close proximity to that person and not feel fear, feel a sense of that down-regulated physiological state. That's part of part of what's happening with, with the social media. The other piece is that social media, well, media in general, but particularly social media, is run by algorithms. It's run by artificial intelligence. And these algorithms are creating what some people call the daily me or enclaves. They're creating this sense of a a hyper-awareness of an us versus them. And what we find from different social research is that when humans are very aware of an outside threat, uh, some sort of danger, the brain starts to become very 
hypervigilant to who's an us and who's a them. And so it's actually a very powerful mechanism for someone in power to make us very hyper aware of some kind of outside threat because what that allows that person in power to do is divide a population into us's versus them's and that makes it easier for them to belong to an us and create an us that they put in power and then to basically basically disempower the them's so it's something that our brain just does it's a just a kind of a neural mechanism that it increases its detection of people who are in and people who are out as soon as we have the sense of uh, an outside threat. And what social media does is the algorithms basically just feed us what we ate before. So we're consuming all of this information is what we're ingesting and consuming. And the algorithms are designed for self-preservation. So Facebook is designed to preserve itself, which means that we need to constantly be on it. And what some people call, I love, um, there's a person named Tristan Harris, and he has a website called timewellspent.io. And he talks about that we need to really increase our awareness that technology is not neutral in that sense. It's neutral in the sense that it's very almost like the brain in the sense that the networks that are kept busy survive and the networks that aren't kept busy die off. And it's not evaluating which ones we should be keeping busy or not keeping busy, it's just survival of the busiest. So whatever networks stay busy, it keeps. And that's what these algorithms are doing. So it's not this willful, malicious, you know, thing that artificial intelligence or these algorithms are doing, but it's just the mechanism that's in place. So what we're seeing is that we're calling this now the attention economy. Media or marketing companies, they will give money to an app or, you know, social media platform based on how much time people spend on that platform. And so all these different platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, all all of them, they are competing for our attention. And remember too, that attention is actually a finite resource. We only have a certain number of hours in each day to devote our attention to something. So it is something we need to treat as sacred. But these companies are, are competing for that. And so they are. there are different classes that people are taking. For example, at Stanford, there's a persuasive technology class. And what they basically need to do is they, they must keep us addicted. They have to activate in us the neural mechanisms that lead to addiction. And part of their source for that is casinos and particularly slot machines, which have are one of the most highly addictive gambling instruments that they have. People become extremely addicted to slot machines. And part of it is there's a variable reward response. So once something becomes very predicted and ter- predictable in terms of the rhythm of the reward that we get, we are less likely to keep going with it. But if there is a variability in that, we will be much more addicted to trying to get that reward. And so, for example, when that little red uh, notification sign comes up, they make sure that there's a variability in the number of seconds it takes to appear. And they're using slot machine addiction mechanisms in order to inform how to do this. And so people that come out of that class, I believe the founders of Instagram and I think also Snapchat, both came out of that that Stanford persuasive technology class. And they are, the, the people that are designing these are making sure that we put as much of our attention and time on that site. And that's really how they get paid. The currency now that is being traded 
is the amount of hours people spend on a site. It's the attention, attention that we, we put to something. So that's the new currency and marketing companies will pay according to how many hours we spend. So you'll see things like YouTube start, or actually I think it was Facebook started, it was trying to compete with YouTube. And so uh, YouTube started to have an autoplay feature that would start having a video play automatically. That makes it so that there are less decisions that you have to make in order to stay on the site, which will make it more likely that you'll stay there. But as that happened, Facebook was competing and Facebook, I'm not sure which one happened first. I might be reversing the order, but Facebook also then started to have videos on this, on the feed, the scrolling down part automatically start playing because there is this competition for who will spend more time. And the less decisions that you have to make to stay, the more likely you will stay because decision-making uses up a lot of neural, you know, processing power. And so one thing we, we just really need to understand is that these companies are are manipulating us um, to make us very addicted to to staying on their websites and to cons- consistently come back. And it's it is not it's not neutral in that sense. The other thing that we a lot of us don't know about um, also coming. Tristan Harris has a sixty minutes on this. That's really interesting. That every time you get a ding, that little sound from a notification, when you get hooked up to different electrodes and EKG and heart monitor, and also um, they can measure cortisol levels. What we see is that every time there is that ding of that notification, your cortisol levels spike. And they spike for, I believe, about 30 minutes. It's, it's not a abrupt high and then low that, that lingers, that cortisol level lingers. So if you think about how many dings you get in a day, that might give you an indication of how much cortisol is actually running through your blood. And we are definitely not adapted to having constant levels of cortisol and adrenaline. That was Those are hormones that were designed for quick bursts and a kinetic release of some sort. So quick burst so that we could mobilize, um, have limb movement of some sort, and then for it to go back down again. But we now have these constant levels of cortisol running through us. So it's something to think about. One suggestion that that timewellspent.io has is, first of all, your home screen have only the really necessary things that you use that have nothing to do with social media. Because remember, social media, there's nothing that is life urgent. There's nothing emergency or life-threatening related to social media. So that never never, ever, ever needs to be your highest priority on any screen that you have. So to actually have your social media stuff so that you have to swipe to see it. Also to to definitely take off the notifications from any of your social media apps, because once again, none of that is emergency related ever, 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 ever. And if you are having family members contact you through social media to indicate an emergency, you really need to adjust that system. So on my phone, I have texts and phone are still stay on my home screen so that I can stay connected with family members in case they need me. But I have no email notification. First of all, I don't have any email notifications. So there's no little red bubble that pops up for any of my email. I don't have apps on my phone for social media. I log in every single time, which makes it take more effort. Well, the only one that I actually have is LinkedIn, but I've turned off notifications so that, and I've kept it off my home screen. So I have to swipe actually two times to get to any of my social media feeds. That just helps us really lower our cortisol levels because we don't need to be having those notifications all the time. We definitely don't need the sound of it because that does increase your cortisol levels. So those are some things to think about. 
So one thing to consider when you're talking to young people about technology and this whole idea of, you know, social media addiction and attention economy manipulation, really, is that one thing that young people are very good at is being hypocrisy detectors. They are very quick to detect when adults are not walking their talk or when they're asking for things of young people that they themselves are not doing. I call them the bullshit detectors of the world. They And they're very important for all of our social movements and civic right movements and things like that because teenagers are at a point where they are very much looking as to how to defy authority in many ways and question it because they are getting set to build their own societies and their own tribes in that sense. So it's important for them to question authority. As parents, we don't tend to like it, but it's a very, very important feature of adolescents to have. And so what they find in campaigns uh, that resonate very well with teenagers is to make them very clear that they are being manipulated by people in power and particularly certain people that are sitting in their very plush offices and are manipulating the minds of the masses in order to have their own profit. And that really is what social media, you know, that is happening. So, and one example of that kind of campaign is they did a anti-smoking campaign and the, their first attempts were to show how dangerous it was. So they put a skull and crossbones on it. I think that was in Japan somewhere. You know, they were just showing them all the different diseases they could get. And, but they did not find that there was any decrease in teen consumption of cigarettes. And in fact, with the skull and crossbones, there was an increase in the consumption of cigarettes by teens. So what they did, and you'll even see it on Hulu, I think there's a couple of those campaigns are going. The most effective one that they have found has been one where they show the tobacco companies profiting and uh, that they are actually manipulating the information and how it's perceived by people. You know, they even have body bags being dragged across in front of the tobacco companies and somebody making money off of that. So what they found was that was one of the most effective anti-smoking, anti-tobacco campaigns for the teen population. They saw pretty significant decreases in teen smoking as a result of those campaigns. So... That's just something to think about if you do present this type of information to younger people is to let them know that there is a large-scale manipulation happening and it has to do with profit and marketing companies and it's the grown-ups that are doing it. But it does have to do with what we are clicking on and what we're sharing. Whatever we click on yesterday will appear in our feed again today and again and again. And every time we share, every time we like, the algorithm will pick that up and feed us more of the same thing. And what it's doing is it's creating these very distinct tribes and also giving a lot of news that will create outrage because that's one of the most shared social media kind of indexes is if if there's a sense of outrage from a piece of news that gets shared the most and entertainment so I think cute kittens is another one <laughs> funny kittens or something funny cat videos but outrage is a really popular well shared emotion in in a sense that gets that gets shared very often on social media so anything that you click on or share you will the algorithm will pick that up and because the outrage index the outrage articles are so high up in popularity it's likely that you will get fed that uh, more and more often so you will be fed 
articles that will create outrage in you towards the out group, towards the them. So there will be a very clear us and a very clear them, and you'll get more and more news that creates outrage towards the people that you disagree with. So it creates a larger and larger gap um, and division. And what we find also is that the more we are aware of this us versus them, the less safe we feel because if there's an us and this, there's a them and there's an outrage against the them, that is a feeling that a predator is present. And so as long as there's a predator that's present, we will be in this state of mobilization. Now, this isn't to say that we should never be in a, in a state of defensiveness or mobilization. A sense of anger and outrage is very important. We need to have the sense of mobilization and anger. However, if our autonomic nervous system is constantly overwhelmed by our sympathetic nervous system, this mobilization defense system, if it's constantly overwhelmed by that, this leads us to become skittish, aggressive, and leads us to misinterpret cues and miscues of safety. So mobilization is not a bad thing. This, you know, that sense of defensiveness is not bad, but we cannot be in a constant state of it. And it's something that I do see in certain circles where basically every single meeting, every interaction I hear is an attempt to trigger outrage and trigger this feeling of an us versus them, that there is a predator. And if that is the constant narrative that is going on, the people in those circles are going to be constantly in a state of defensiveness and mobilization, which means that they're not going to be engaging with that more flexible, adaptive, creative problem solving. So what's going to happen is it's just going to be a repeat of the narrative over and over and over again, that there's an us, there's a them, the them is evil, the us is good, and there's not really going to be any kind of creative problem solving or solution seeking. And also there's not going to be any information trickling in from any other sources. Those, if you're in an us versus them cycle and you're constantly being told how to be outraged by a them, there's a good chance that in those circles, you've become an enclave, an enclave, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but you've created this very tight circle that's not going to allow for outside information to come in to question any of the narratives or scripts that are happening, to see possibly another side, another perspective, and add some of those multiple perspectives. And that actually really is not healthy for the human nervous system, the human body body brain-mind dynamics. It does increase oxytocin among the in-group. And what we do actually find is that the higher the oxytocin levels of that in-group, the more hostility and aggression they, f- they have towards others. And what some people I'm noticing are losing sight of is they think they're in the good in-group. And so their hostility and aggression towards the out-group is different than what they detect as that out-group being hostile and aggressive to them, but it's actually the exact same dynamic happening on all sides of every spectrum, political spectrum that you can see is if there's a constant state of very high hyper awareness of us versus them, there's a state of mobilization, defensiveness, and this is going to just repeat scripts and narratives over and over and over again without much creative solution seeking. So it's something to be aware of. Um, I think it's important for us to 
have moments where we can have discussions with people that are part of something we might think is a them and not an us, and to allow for that social engagement system to come online so that we can have a moment of social intimacy and engagement with somebody else. And that will increase our feelings of safety, which will actually help us engage our more evolved neural architecture that will help us come up with creative adaptive, flexible solutions to some of the challenges we face. So that's, to me, an important um, societal level of safety that we're faced with. And then just quickly, one other piece is that media, media in general, basically the slogan for journalists that, that they learn very quickly on is that if it bleeds, it leads. So the more uh, gory, the more blood, the more danger, the more publicity that story will get. And media is based on rankings. It's based on ratings. What you don't have in media, you don't have much media that reports on safety. You don't have a lot of news headlines that say, this country has not been facing any threat lately. This corner of this street has been safe for the last 36 days or whatever. You will only see the headlines that are reporting danger. And so this is called the availability heuristic, the availability bias that we, because we see headlines that only report danger, not because that's how much danger there is, but because we aren't getting the headlines based on all the different levels of safety, we tend to think there is much more danger that there is. And whether or not that's true, the point being that if we're constantly consuming this, we are going to be in a constant state of mobilization and activation of our sympathetic nervous system, which means high cortisol, which means we're not going to be learning, we're not going to be creative, flexible problem solvers. So whether or not we think that that is true, I think that it is in everyone's best interest to try to have lower cortisol at some moment of the day and to engage in a feeling of safety, a down-regulated physiological state of safety. We can do this, again, with self-regulation, but co-regulation is is a very powerful way to do it. And self-regulation would definitely require us to move away from media, social media, and media in general, in order to be in the present moment and engage with the live data of that moment and allow that to help us regulate our system. We're going to finish with my little acronym, so I'll go over it pretty quickly because we we touched on a lot today. So the acronym is CARING. Sounds really cheesy, but I love acronyms, and if I don't really care (laughs) if it's cheesy or not. So it's CARING, C-A-R-I-N-G. C stands for connection. So the most important thing we can do is to connect using our social engagement system. Prosody of voice, presence, present eye gaze, tuning our middle ear muscles to hear someone's voice and you know facial gestures smiling eyes so connection using the social engagement system and there's an attachment psychologist Gordon Neufeld and I love his saying which is connection before direction that what we find in most mammal species and humans is that the most important thing to engage with somebody whether following instructions or having them listen to you is is the level of attachment they feel with you. That's more important than any of the commands or directions that you give them. And the more you try to manipulate, convince, command, or direct somebody, the more likely you're going to sense some resistance. But if you put connection first, then what that does is it, it engages that social engagement system so that person is feeling less defensive. And that's going to allow for them to then stay in their social engagement zone so that you can actually hear each other and pay attention to each other's voice. 
A stands for attention rituals. And we didn't really go into that, but attention is very important. Attention and rituals. So rituals are important for building up myelination. We need patterned repetition of different things that we do in order for the brain to really devote resources to establishing neural circuitry that becomes more automatic for us. So rituals are important and attention rituals is anything where we can just pay attention to one particular thing for a certain amount of time, whether it's our breath, a sound, it's feeling our breath, hearing our breath, seeing our stomach moving up and down, listening to one particular sound, a clock ticking, and to do it for as long as we can for a certain amount of time, what that does is it builds up basically the attention features of the brain, the attention muscle. There's not one particular area. There's quite a few involved in all of this. And again, remember that middle ear tension, it has something to do also with, with attention. So any kind of ritual you can bring into your life where you're allowing yourself to pay attention to something for a certain amount of time, that is allowing you to just increase that, really that neural tone. It's a neural exercise that will allow you to do that. Um, The next is intentional technology. So what I mean by that is to be more intentional about how we use technology. And one other piece on that is even just uh, in terms of our brainwaves. So as we're sleeping, we have our, you know, delta brainwaves and we have some beta as we go into our, our dreams. As we wake up in the morning, we move into alpha brainwaves. But many of us don't stay in these alpha brainwaves. And the alpha brainwaves are very helpful for us to have moments of self-awareness, self-reflection, a little bit of just mind wandering, but in a way that actually can consolidate things and help us have aha moments. It primes our brain for that. But many of us jump immediately from delta, and we don't allow for these smoother alpha brainwaves to play a role in our lives. We immediately jump into beta brainwaves, which is what happens when we interact with social media, with another person. And what I would say is that it's important for us to guard our brainwaves a little bit longer. Because remember, social media is definitely, absolutely leading us to have almost hardwiring of addict- of addiction in our brain to the dopamine and different reward hormones that are coming from social media updates and engagement. So to try and have some time, personally, I try for at least 30 minutes to an hour before I engage with anything on my phone other than turning off the alarm. There are a lot of people that say don't even have your phone as an alarm and have something else. As, there's plenty of other ways to have an alarm without your phone. Put your phone in another room. But at least some moment where you're just being intentional about it, intentionally setting some time aside where you are controlling your impulse, controlling yourself before you grab the phone. If you're not able to do that, then you, you're you lacking impulse control, meaning that it is basically a reflexive addictive, impulsive behavior. And what I see is that a lot of parents are asking their children to not be on technology very often, but I find most of those parents have a very hard time controlling their impulse to grab the phone as soon as there's a notification of any sort, especially when it's social media. So if you are not able to control that, for example, in front of your children, you know, using executive functioning, particularly housed in that the prefrontal cortex, but many other areas of the brain too. And if you're not doing that, uh, uh, you know, the person in your presence is going to have a hard time following your lead in terms of that impulse control. So that's something to think about also. But just in, even if we're not uh, modeling for somebody else, our ability to control our impulses and not reach for the phone because we have that craving. And that's usually the feeling, no, start noticing the sensations you feel right before 
you reach for the phone. It's going to be a craving of wanting to change up your physiological state. If you feel like it's becoming too calm, too downregulated, you want a jolt. You want a hit of something. And that's, that is an addiction. So as soon as you have that craving for wanting to change your physiological state, notice it before you reach for the phone. See if you can control the motor movement of reaching for the phone and just notice that sensation and see if noticing your breath, you can, you know, take a long exhalation, at least try and figure out how to have some kind of impulse control. Otherwise, it really does control you and it changes your day. So that's intentional technology. And then the last one is noticing the good and the growth. And so I won't go spend too much time on that, but just be being more aware of how much media is presenting outrage to us and violence and, and fear and danger. And understand that the numbers actually don't correlate with the amount of danger that we think there is in the world. But even besides that, even if you don't even want to go there, just understand that that is being, you are being manipulated to keep consuming, you know, media that keeps you in the sense of outrage. And what that's doing is it's keeping you in that mobilization defense system, which is keeping your cortisol levels up. So if you care about your health, you care about your personal relationships and your well-being, you need to try to lower your cortisol levels and try to be using that live social engagement system, face-to-face, face-to-heart connection with people to down-regulate that sympathetic nervous system. So what we looked at today was the idea that a lot of what we're doing in social media and in our digital communications isn't allowing us to access that highly evolved, biologically hardwired social intimacy, social engagement, and social connection system that is within us. And so it can leave us not feeling completely satiated in many ways. And we also saw that we are not necessarily getting chances to have our minds changed about a lot of things. We're getting very reinforced of our own opinions, and this is creating a certain divisiveness in many of our communities and culture and society. So a couple of things that we can do to help us get out of this. I'm going to list uh, four things. The first is, and I've mentioned this in a few other episodes, but we're going to just touch on it again in a slightly different way, is self-regulation once again. So I touched on that in episode five, and I also mentioned it in episode three when I talked about intentional technology. So to quote someone named Jim Quick, he says, we need to guard the sovereignty of our own brain, our own brainwaves more often. So in order to be able to really be socially adept and socially intelligent, we need to have a level of our own self-regulation. We need to be able to control our own impulses, to be able to find the right things to say, and to actually express what we truly want to say in a situation rather than defensive kind of reflexive reactions to people. So self-regulating, having time each day where we don't use our five senses, where we don't use technology, we're not interacting with another person. So we're trying to find a way to get into a calm inner state without using anybody or anything else, just our mind. And this helps us garner or uh, hone our ability to focus our attention on something we are purposely trying to hold our attention on. And so what that does is it helps us, first of all, when we're 
alone to be able to have a little more control over where our thoughts go. So part of the danger of not being able to focus our attention is it will be captured by absolutely everything and anything. So to have a a bit of moments, a few moments each day, I try for at least 15 to 30 minutes each day where I'm not using my five senses, I'm closing my eyes, I'm trying to have a quiet space. And that might need to be in a parked car somewhere um, down the street if if it can't be at home or in the bathroom. But time where we're, we are not engaging with anybody else or we're not engaging with technology or any kind of object. And one of the best things that we can try to focus on is something that's very consistent that will not really ever change. And so you'll see I'm probably leading to it's really great to focus on something like our breath if we can. That's really one of the best things. Or it's sometimes just this feeling of presence or the quietness that might be there if if that's possible. And the reason for this is if we try to focus our attention on anything else, such as a thought, it gets very hard because that shifts very quickly. So once we get better at focusing on something that's in the present moment, we can get better at focusing on a power thought or a mantra that goes in our mind, maybe an expression or a saying. But I do find it easier to anchor onto something that's physically present first, like the breath, and then possibly to go into a power mantra. But to me, it's much more difficult to focus on an image or a thought because you go into kind of a zone that can be flitting around and a little more frantic and all that. So the first idea is to to bring that kind of self-awareness and and attentional control. And just to give you an example of how this can help in a social situation, I did that myself where I was focusing on trying to, you know, have more attentional control. And then I also combined that with bringing up situations in my mind of difficult relationships I was having and seeing myself still anchored on my breath, anchored in the present moment, feeling calm in the presence of really explosive anger or really disruptive relationships. So I'd actually imagine the worst, but feel myself calm. And I did that for many, many months and worked that muscle. And what I found was that once I got into those situations with those people, I was able to focus more on the present moment. Sometimes I would notice how their face gestures would change and just notice that or notice my breath. And although that sounds like if I'm doing that, I might not be able to interact appropriately with the person because I'm focused on something else, it doesn't quite work like that. It actually just helped me stay in the moment so that I tried to engage more with what was currently happening rather than getting tied into the narratives and the stories that I was bringing into that thing. So that's Part of what I find helps when we have an ability to focus more on the present moment, if we can do that when we're on our own so that we can practice that muscle in a way, that that, um, skill, then when we're in situations with people, we are hopefully, at least to somewhat of a degree, interacting more with the words that are actually being said and the the subtle biological movements that we detect in that person that's actually projecting how they feel and trying to respond in a way that's a little slower, a little more deliberate, where there's a pause between a feeling that we get from them, like a jolt of anger, and then there's we can actually allow that to sit for just a second 
before we make the movements with our mouth and our vocal cords to utter a response. So having this ability to focus on the present moment makes us way more powerful in social situations because part of what I see as the breakdown in almost every situation I've seen and experienced or been a counselor in is that people are bringing all their emotions and all their backstories that they tie to those words and they tie to that person. They're bringing that into the moment, into the conversation, rather than actually dealing with the words and the actual stuff that's happening in that moment, uh, like moment by moment, if that makes sense. So the first idea is this kind of self-regulation again, having some time for ourselves without our five senses, using our mind. The second is more co-regulation, meaning that we actually interact live in the flesh with other people so that all of our senses are being engaged, so that we are being more authentic to how we're biologically wired to interact with others. And this also is so important for our mind because it allows it to be It pushes it to be much more flexible. If we are engaged in that asynchronous timing where you also get to, for example, text somebody and they don't text back or they text you and you don't text them back. In human live-to-live interaction, we can't do that so well. That's very weird if we were (laughs) to just literally shut down and not look away or just walk away in the middle of someone's sentence. Obviously, those are tactics some people do but it will get received by a more immediate response also. So the interacting live using all those senses, it forces our brain to be way more on point and flexible in that moment and creative in trying to get the responses that that we're looking for and to express ourselves the way we want to express ourselves. So co-regulation, first of all, practicing, you know, just social the social engagement system, but also finding those people that do allow us that feeling of kind of intimacy where we can be immobilized with them to a certain extent where we can just sit and be and not perform. So that is also a way to regulate and to have more of our evolved neural circuitry coming online. The third is being in nature. And the reason for that is a few things. One is that nature is so incredibly dynamic. So nature, things in nature are not bringing their backstories and mental or psychological narratives to the things they do. There's a a strong cause-effect relationship that happens in nature that isn't laden with different emotions that we bring in. So there's less of this defensive it's a little bit more neutral and objective when we're looking at nature. So there's a bit of that. Also, there are patterns in nature, but no two patterns are ever alike. There's no identical uh, fingerprint on any anything that exists in nature. Whereas things that we have uh, that are man-made, we do try to replicate them identically you know, in terms of mass producing things. So when we're in nature, we are being presented with dynamic and never repeating patterns that are constantly occurring. And that activates a lot of fresh neural circuitry. So adding some nature into our day can be really powerful for just activating new neural circuitry. Also, there's no reciprocity that is asked by nature. So when we walk by a tree or animals, there's nothing being asked of us. There's no burden that they are putting on us to to give back to them. So being out in nature can be really powerful. And then lastly, just being in the presence of other people who have some intention in their life. So we can't, you know, necessarily fix every social circle that we're in. 
and we can be somewhat stuck in certain relationships and circles. But if we can have some chance of being with people who put a little bit of intention into their day, who are attempting to be uplifting and growth mind, mindset oriented, that can be really helpful rather than only surrounding ourselves with people that are, you know, fixed mindset or negative or very repetitive and outraged. So trying to have a little bit more intention with who we choose to surround ourselves with. Those are, those are some things too. So I hope you found that helpful, um, that episode, and I hope my voice was clear enough. Apologies. So again, just uh, email me if you have any questions and we'll be wrapping up this season fairly soon in a couple of episodes. So thanks again for joining me. For free resources and materials, including the Growth Mindset Goal Setting Booklet, head to my website at stephaniefayfrank.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave a review. If you do, you'll be entered for a chance to win a scholarship to one of my training programs or online course. 